I was going through what social animals owe to each other. There's so much information in here. What I wanted to do was ask you about your 10 favorite books. And I know you said you had a lot of trouble uh, narrowing it down to 10, which which is just such a funny problem to have. So you you gave me the list. I looked through it. I love these books. I want to go through them. I'm going to give you the title. You tell me what the biggest takeaway the most productive takeaway was from this book. Let's start with the concept of mind. Ah, 1949 by the philosopher, the Cambridge, uh, sorry, the Oxford philosopher. Oh my gosh, almost made a big faux pas there. Uh, Gilbert Ryle, who was part of the, uh, oh, sort of analytic, ordinary language school of philosophy in England that has uh, you know, some association with Wittgenstein and, uh, and um, J.L. Austin and, and some others. And that's, a, that's an important book. It's not a political book, but it has a lot of political ramifications. And it's especially relevant today because we hear so much uh, out of people interested in neuroscience and other hard sciences who are challenging the idea of free will. And free will ought to be of obvious interest to libertarians or anybody interested in liberty because there's no freedom of the will what are we even talking about? I mean, you can't even use the word ought if you don't believe that people have agency. And, uh, and, and how do we hold people responsible for their actions or praise them for their actions if they ha- can't choose their actions? So it's a very important subject, uh, but it's a, bi- it's a big subject. Plenty of philosophers and other types, neuroscientists, Sam Harris, for example, uh, write about f- free will. And uh, it seems to be uh, considered uh, a big deal uh, in a scientific frame of mind to, to, to deny free will. Ryle, I think, puts us on, the, on, a, on a good footing. Ryle doesn't believe we have some sort of ghost in the machine. And I think he actually originated that phrase as a way of attacking the kind of Descartes approach, right? That there's a there's a there's a ghost, there's a spirit in us that has the will, and then it works the body, but no one can figure out how to how the two interact. So he 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 explains in that how you can you don't need that to have freedom of the will, uh, and it's very important. In other words, we are we are we are material beings, but we are conscious and self-conscious material beings, and it's just beautiful the way he goes through and and it illustrates that. I'll stop there because you got so many other books to cover. Um, next anyway, one. <laughs> next one is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Uh, I don't know how much I need to say about that. Nineteen is that nineteen forty-three. Ayn Rand, of course, uh, and it's uh, the first of her novels that I read, um, and it is about this uh, architect, young architect Howard Rourke, who gets who actually gets kicked out of art school or architect school, architecture school. Because he uh, he refuses to just abide by tradition for the sake of tradition, and so it's a beautiful novel, really at a psychological level. It's not a lot about politics. She saved politics for Atlas Shrugged, which comes in '57, which I could throw in there and cheat. So there's an eleventh book I can name as a as a favorite. But this is more at the psychological level about what does it mean to think for yourself, live by your own judgment. Not be a nonconformist for the sake of nonconformism, but often you're going to end up as a nonconformist because you're thinking for yourself and you and you're not just blindly following tradition. It's a beautiful illustration. It's a good story, good characters. Uh, it was a movie starring Gary Cooper that came out around what forty nine, which was the year I was born. Um, and while that movie had some flaws, Gary Cooper was way too old. He was like fifty 
didn't look look too old to be fresh on architecture school, but a lot of virtues too. So if you can find it anywhere, it's worth watching. 1984 by George Orwell. Again, a book maybe that doesn't need much uh, uh, description. Uh, Orwell comes out in 1948. He was going to call it 1948, but I think his publisher or others said, uh, put it more in the future. Because he, he didn't think he was really making predictions. He thought he saw in Stalinist Russia, uh, uh, you know, and of course it was uh, at the end of World War II, so in Hitler's uh, Germany, which had been defeated by then, uh, what what the dangers were, what, what was coming. It's a, it's a great novel. I think it's the only novel on my list. I'm pretty sure. I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, no, well, sorry, The Fountainhead was a novel. Forgive me. But they're the only two novels on the list. Um, uh, it shows you brilliantly the horrors of totalitarianism, whether it's right or left, a bogus distinction when it comes to totalitarianism. He's talking about socialism, actually, even though he was a man of the socialist left, but he was he was not a Stalinist. He was not a totalitarian. Uh, and so it's just a har harrowing, scary movie. It's almost like a horror. I mean, sorry, it's a great movie, too. I was going to mention that novel, horror novel about what life is like in a completely totalitarian state. Uh, the protagonist, a man named Winston Smith, gets some sense of uh, what's wrong and begins to assert himself individually and meets a woman who has the same sort of yearnings. And, it, and it's just a great story. There is a movie or a couple of versions of the movie, but the last one I'm aware of came out, I believe, in 1984, starring John Hurt and Richard Burton. It's it's a uh, it's very bleak. It's, dep it's depressing, uh, but it's a good movie and uh, I recommend it. Do you think that uh, tyranny is, you know, well, when it comes or wh where it has existed is something that's really in your face and almost at war with the population? Or does it almost, in order to gain ground, have to convince the population, like Etienne de la Boite would say, it almost yeah. has to persuade the population to sort of at least not actively resist it? Um, do, do you think that uh, what we often see tyranny directly or it's something that happens and we almost don't even notice it because we're like a slowly boiled frog? Yeah. Well, the, uh, a regime w would have to try to get to that point because it can't watch everything. And this is brought out in the Orwell's novel because there's the, there's the whole group of people, the masses known as the proles in the story, who aren't monitored. They're kind of on automatic pilot. They've been, don't forget, the education system has been completely controlled. Uh, pay attention when reading this novel to, to what Orwell is saying about language. Very, very important. The politics of language. The dictionary is shrinking every year. There's always a new edition of Newspeak. So some words disappear. And, of course, the government also totally controls all information flow, all news, right? There's no way to get anything. Things are flushed down the memory hole. So things that people thought they knew a year ago, you know, will get flushed down the memory hole when it becomes inconvenient for the regime. And they can't even find it like in a library archive. It's gone. It's gone. So it's almost like gaslighting. You know, we use the expression gaslighting, which was a movie that came uh, in the 50s, I guess. Maybe that was in the 40s. No, that was that was probably in the 40s too. Where uh, you make it say, "Well, I'm crazy. I thought such and such was the case. I thought I remember reading that two years ago, but now when I look at the newspaper archive in the library or wherever, 
there's no word about it. In fact, it's totally the opposite. That's because the government's changed everything. So it, the, the ability to think has been compressed because the language has been compressed and information has been compressed. By the way, just to correct one thing, a frog will jump out of the water when it's gradually heated. That's a myth about frogs. It may not be, it may be true about human beings, but you can look it up. Frogs are smarter, smarter than human beings, I guess. They will jump out when they perceive the heat. They won't get boiled to death with a gradual heating of the water. Anyway. I feel I horrible just, for slandering the frog race. Everybody uh, gets that wrong. Everybody I, I, gets I need wrong. to come up with a new analogy. I never really thought of everybody it. Everybody uses it. I think, Sam Harris, empirically. I think Sam Harris or somebody has promised not to use it anymore because he finally got called on it. <laughs> That's a cheap promise from a guy who has so much other apologizing to do. <laughs> uh, so, so one final word on Orwell. Yes. 1949, Huxley writes him a letter and says, whether in actual fact the policy of the boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I describe in Brave New World. Brave New World. Do you have any comment on that? Well, I'd have to think about that. I, I wasn't aware of that uh, comment by Huxley, uh, and I read Brave New World a long time ago. While I've reread Orwell's a couple of times, a few times, it's the kind of book you could read every year and always learn something from it. Um, I didn't read Huxley's, which isn't to say I didn't like it. Um, so I don't know. But like I said, a, but a big part of the population is on autopilot in 1984. The proles aren't monitored because they're not mm. going to do anything. They're too ingrained. So maybe isn't that what Huxley has in mind? Uh, oh, oh, I should say one more thing. Well, no, I'll wait. I'll wait because for the next book you're going to get to. I don't want to give it away. Anyway, the, yeah, that's my position on Huxley. I have to think more about it, but I think Orwell kind of addresses that. I wonder what Orwell wrote back to Huxley. <laughs> that I was not able to find, but uh, yeah. that, that'll be my next project. Maybe he, did, maybe he didn't write that. <laughs> next book, Road to Serfdom by Friedrich right. Hayek. And this is really paired with 1984. I think you should read both books consecutively, uh, maybe even concurrently. Depends on how good you are at multitasking. Uh, this is, I think, one of the most remarkable books that I've ever read. And, you know, I could I could be really grand and say ever written. Uh, you know, Hayek wrote so much about economics at first and then social policy more general, more generally, philosophy generally. But this is an amazing book he took time out to write during World War II. He's in Britain by now. He's an Austrian, of course, but makes his way to Britain. And he's he's writing there when the war's still going on. It comes out in 1944, I believe that's right. Um, and uh, his point is there, it's been often been misinterpreted. What Hayek is saying in that book, and I recommend that people should read it, uh, is that if you take planning of the economy and society at large. I mean, economy is integrated in society, right? We can't be dualist. There's not society and the economy. They're one thing. Uh, we may use the terms to highlight one aspect versus you know other aspects of, of social life, but you, there's no real separation. Uh, it doesn't mean everything we do involves money, but that's because the economy is broader than just money anyway. So anyway, if, if you're, if, if, there was a lot of talk about planning while the war was on. During, in a world war, this is true of America too, uh, the government basically commandeers the economy, right? There was a war against Hitler. Sim similar thing happened in World War One. Uh, 
It hasn't happened with the lesser war since then, even Vietnam, the government didn't take over the economy. But in those world wars, the government assumed control. It had first priority on resources, everything, labor. So people were saying in Britain and and, pro- and here too, that look how good this is working. The world, the war was 44, I guess the end was in sight, uh, although still some time to go. You had people, probably left and right, saying, uh, planning's working pretty well. We're beating Hitler. We're beating Germany, a powerful country. And look how well we're doing with planning. Why should we stop planning when the war ends? This was a serious conversation. Uh, And Hayek was very concerned about this, along with others. Mises, his teacher Mises, and, and other classical liberals of the, of the time, Austrian and, and non-Austrian in their economic orientation. Um, he, um, you know, he dedicates the book famously to, to the socialists of all parties. He knew this was not just the Labour Party in England or the, you know, Democrats or uh, anywhere, you know, in the US or anywhere else. Uh, this tainted across the spectrum. Classical liberalism, that vision was fading and he was very concerned. And chapter by chapter, each chapter begins with an amazing quotation from somebody, some classic, some more contemporary, just worth worth looking at. He goes through all that is bound to happen if you're serious about planning. Now he's often been misinterpreted. People have thought, even some libertarians have thought he was saying, if you start a well, if you have a welfare state, you're going to end up on a slippery slope, and you're going to have, you know, Stalinist Russia or Hitler's Germany, uh, just by having uh, government intervention or the welfare state. That wasn't the prediction. The prediction was if you are serious about planning, the welfare state is not planning. For all the objections we can make, it doesn't seek to abolish the market, right, or abolish and essentially abolish abolish private property. It wants to modify outcomes through welfare payments, social security. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not defending those things, but I'm distinguishing it from totalitarianism, from planning. And Mises did. Mises called that interventionism versus to, uh, versus uh, planning. Very different. Now, the welfare state, no welfare state abolishes the price system. It may muck around with the price system, but it doesn't abolish it. So anyway, if you're serious about planning and you're going to really take it seriously, and he talks about what that means, and you're not going to turn back from it, then you're going to end up with totalitarianism. It's going to require total control of society. And his chapters are just wonderful about how he has one chapter, I think, called The Death of Truth. If you want people to go along with the plan, don't forget it's a detailed plan for society. If, if you need people to go along, you're going to have to, the regime will have to systematically lie to them to get them to go along. If you're going to have a plan, you can't let consumers and individual individuals generally uh Depart from the plan. How can we let one individual wreck the plan? You have to have an iron fist. He has a chapter called Why the Worst Rise to the Top. Ultimately, it's going to take violence to keep people in line. Maybe this is part of the answer to Huxley. Because people will want to do their own thing. But if there's a detailed plan, they can't do their own thing. So now you're going to need an iron fist. Some people don't have the stomach to exert that kind of power. 
some people like political power, but they don't really have the fortitude to, you know, stamp on the face, as uh, Huxley put it, puts it, right? Stamp on the face of people. They they shrink from that. Oh, I didn't mean that. I don't want to do that. Well, who's that leave the field to then in the in the in the area of leadership? The ones that don't mind doing that. The worst. Those are the worst. How the worst get on top? He's got a great chapter on, um, you know, on how it under it'll it'll lead to a strong man. For this reason, let's say you start out democratically and you have people say, well, I'm, I'm not a Stalinist. I'm a, so, I'm a democratic socialist. I want it to be done by voting. Who do we think of? Sanders, right? Bernie Sanders. Um, I want it to do it in a nice, peaceful way. OK, let's go with that. So we're not a de- we're not an Athenian democracy. We elect representatives. So they're going to come up with the plan. Well, let's say in Congress, the Senate and the House, you get 100 percent agreement that there ought to be a plan. That's not going to happen for one thing, but let's assume it. We'll make the heroic assumption you get 100% that there should be a plan. You're not any, you're never going to get 100% or anything close to it on what the details of the plan should be. Think about each individual who who maybe is even trying to represent the constituents. A very diverse group constituents, right? The average, what's the average uh, congressional district? Six hundred thousand people or something? It's a lot of people. Um, are they going to uh, come up? Or are they going to all agree on a unified plan? No, they're not. So, in other words, if Congress is going to debate interminably on the plan, and as Hayek puts it, that's going to lay the ground for a strong man to come along. Think of a strong man, a Bonaparte or somebody on a horseback, saying. We can't put up with Congress debating forever what the plan is. We see we want a plan. When do we want a plan? 100 years from now? No, we need a plan now. And what? And so now you have the possibility of a dictatorship, a coup. You're you're paving the way for the strong man who's going to be the worst rising to the top. He'll have a stomach for violence. Won't he? It's a brilliant book. It's a short book. It's amazing how much he gets into a pretty thin book. I highly recommend it. Read it with 1984, and then go to fee.org, which I used to be the editor of the Freeman, to, to look up an article I wrote about those two books. I believe it's called From 1944 to 1984. And you'll read about Orwell's review of The Road to Serfdom. And then you'll have a link. You can actually read his review. Uh, he didn't like, I mean, he liked a lot of the book because of the warnings about totalitarianism, but he was not a pro-market guy. He was a, Democrat, a democratic socialist. He thought the market leads to depression, chronic unemployment, and all kinds of misery and, you know, class division and all that stuff. So, that's, okay, we can move on. <laughs> How would you briefly explain to a progressive who might say, um, well, yeah, the state is an imperfect planner, but at least we have representatives. There's planning in the private sector with firms all the time who are just seeking to screw us and profit uh, off of our labor. How do you give an elevator pitch to someone with that mindset to maybe reconsider their position? I got the perfect I got the perfect elevator pitch because it's one word, competition. As long as there are not state barriers to competition, and you need the state if you really want barriers to competition. In most cases, certainly in any kind of large scale case, they'll talk about a little town where there's, you know, can only support one drugstore. But even there, you could have potential competition if the market's open. That's the protection. Uh, If you look at Milton Friedman's book, I'll cheat and throw in a book here called um, Free to Choose. 
you know, he has chapters on who protects the consumer, who protects the worker. And so the one on consumer would be relevant here. Competition is ultimately what protects the consumer. The government typically is captured by special interests. Who has better access to the halls of power? You know, me, somebody who's, uh, you know, poor, working a minimum minimum wage, and uh, uh, what kind of access to power does he have? Uh, but, uh, you know, cronyism is well known, well documented, and no one's ever come up with how you're going to protect the back, uh, protect against cronyism if government has all this power. So it's just ridiculous. The government is a monopoly, and in the marketplace, no one no one has can have a coercive monopoly. Uh, you may uh, you know briefly be the only say manufacturer or seller, but only because you're really darn good. But if there's free competition, and that means no intellectual property, by the way, no intellectual property laws, then you won't be able to hold a monopoly position. You can try very hard, but the way to try is by being as good as you can possibly be. And it's not by having high profits, because as, uh, as I, was, I once learned long ago, if your firm has very high profits, that's like standing on the roof and yelling, hey, competitors, come in, come in, get in on the action. High profits are, an, you know, people are, Venture capitalists, uh, I hate to call it, I don't like the word capitalism. Venture investors and those types are looking for areas where profits are high. That shows their opportunities. If you want to keep the competition out, keep your profits really low. Because <laughs> that's not going to invite any newcomer in. So it's a little bit ironic. I mean, but the uh, the left doesn't, the, 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 the anti-market left does not understand that. Excellent answer. Next book, Dependent on D.C., I had to put this in. It's certainly one of my favorite books because it, uh, my fear, it's not very well known. It's written by Charlotte Twight, and it came out in, I looked the dates up, uh, hang on a second. Uh, 2002, so not, not, very, uh, not very long ago. And um, she was, um, she had an association with Robert Higgs, the great Robert Higgs, who, and I'll cheat again here, uh, author of the wonderful book, 1987, called uh, Crisis and Leviathan, How Government Grows Because of Crises, and 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 kind of doesn't ever shrink back to the pre, anyway, enough of my cheating, that's, a, that's now the 12th book <laughs> we're going to mention. Charlotte Twight, who was a, I don't think she was actually a student of his, I think she might have been, he might have been on her dissertation committee. She wrote this wonderful book called Dependent on D.C., and it's about how government, and it's very well documented, it's not just theory, half the book is uh, uh, chap, uh, basically uh, case histories, how Medicare got passed in the 60s, and you know it's actual real uh, firm empirical evidence for her, the first part of the book, which is the theory. Government officials in Congress and other places, bureaucrats go out of their way to obscure what their activities are in order to make it difficult for Average citizens who are busy raising their kids, making a living, being involved in the community, you know, all the stuff that people, regular people do, making it very difficult, close to impossible, to find out what government is really doing. I don't mean what they tell you they're doing through their press conferences and, you know, Congress sends out the, their letter to constituents or emails these days. Uh, in fact, they're doing stuff that's very hard to figure out. And, and she puts it in sort of e economic, economic terms. Government raises the political transaction costs of monitoring the government. 
It's very hard, unless you're a real wonk and want to spend time reading the government's budget and looking at bills that are being proposed, which are not easy to read. They're not easy to read because often they're amending other laws, laws already passed. So now you have to go find those laws to find out what, what section 4A, subsection B, sub, subsection 2, what the change is. Because you know, the, the new bill will say, we're going to change that subsection with this language. Well, you got to go see what's in the subsection that's being changed. Try doing that someday if you're raising kids holding a job, trying to advance in your job so you can make more money so your kids can have a better future and your spouse. And, and uh, the, the average person can't do it. Only if you're a wonk or a masochist, a wonk who's getting paid to do it, or a masochist who does it as a hobby, you don't have the time. That's why the informed voter is kind of a myth. I'll cheat. There's another book. Read the myth, of the, the myth of the Rational Voter by Brian Kaplan. Very good book, too. So... Her book is about, number one, how the government raises the cost of figuring out what the government's up to. So you, it's very hard to know whether it's going beyond the narrow limits you may favor. You may be for limited government, but you don't know what the heck the government's even doing. Number two, even if you figured out what it's doing, it's expensive to, to do anything about it. Yes, what, mount a, a public crusade? What's that cost? You only get one vote. One vote doesn't decide elections. Unless you live in a tiny town that, you know, if, where 50 people are voting for mayor or ball catcher, maybe there could be a tie. But even there, it doesn't happen very much. But then in any kind of significant, anything larger than that, the, the odds that you're going to change the outcome of an election, you, there are better chance, you have a better chance of getting hit by lightning on the way to the polls than of changing the outcome. So even if you figure out some wrongdoing or something you don't like that the government's doing, what can you do about it? The cost would be so great to what the mind, the little your sliver of the cost for that action is that you're going to say, I'd like to stop it, but it's it's not worth it. Look what I have. To, remember the concept of opportunity cost. What won't I be doing because I'm doing that, which probably won't succeed anyway. It's not even worth the price of a stamp, maybe to write to my congressman or I guess for email. It's free. You don't have to buy a stamp. Anyway, that's it's a great book. Uh, it's a very important book. I'm, I'm sorry it didn't get the attention it deserves. Jason, Jason, uh, Jason Brennan summarized it for me. He said, well, imagine that I said I'm going to give you the winning lottery numbers, but mm -hmm. uh, I hid them in the Georgetown library where there's something like <laughs> 1.2 million books. So just <laughs> just read through the books, find yeah. the lottery number, and then you'll win the lottery. It literally would not be worth it for me to read the books. I'd be. Yeah. 55 before I ever had a chance of coming across it and I will have spent my entire life and yeah. that's assuming no breaks. So that's right. that was just such a brilliant analogy that I'm that book. I I will go out of my way and read because I love that concept yeah. so much. I'm very interested. Well, Kaplan, Kaplan, you know, kind of gets into the same uh, subject matter as uh, as Brennan and other people have done this. Uh, Gordon Tullock, the late Gordon Tullock, one of the pioneers of public choice used to write about it. And it's amazing the resistance you'll get on this point. It's almost like you're attacking some sacred thing. If you tell somebody, you know, every every time there's an election, we're told every vote counts, get out there and vote. Uh, when I tell people, especially I have some family members, when I say, your vote doesn't count, sorry, that, that's just a joke. You wouldn't believe it's like you're attacking their religion. And, and for a lot of people, politics is like religion, isn't it? Um, 
it's I'm amazed at what how the defenses go up. How dare you say that? Of course, of course, one vote counts. The winner has an accumulation of a lot of single votes. I said, I know, but I only have one vote. And what if everybody did what you did? Well, nobody even knows what I'm going to do. It's not as if I decide to stay home on Election Day. You know, 10 million people say Richmond's staying home on Election Day. I got I just got a vibe, <laughs> mystical vibe. So we're all staying home, too. Oh, there goes the election. I only control my action. I always act at the margin. I, I might well say, why don't I just spend that time doing something where I can make a difference in the outcome, like taking my kid for a walk in the park or reading to my kid. Going to a soup kitchen, helping something out. Else. Yeah, go to a soup. Right. Feels good to charity. do that. Yeah. Spend that time with a charity. Uh, I might make somebody's life better. I'm not going to make anybody's life better by voting. Now, if you want to vote because you want to feel like you're part of a community, you know, we're all for so-and-so, and I just, that, I won't attack that kind of subjective uh, payoff. If that's a payoff to you, you know, I can't, I'm not going to criticize you. But if you think I'm going to make sure my candidate gets over the finish line, then I'm going to kind of laugh at you. <laughs> I mean, I'm... You I made a deal with a friend who ran for city council and said, please, Keith, can you register and vote for me? I said, look, once my vote is 10 million times more valuable than Bill Crystal's vote, then I will go out and vote. <laughs> Until then, it's not worth my time. I'm sorry. I wish you the best of luck. People Next don't understand that. <laughs> Next book we have, The Ethics of Liberty by Murray and Rothbard. And I could have picked a lot of books by Rothbard, very influential on in me. Um, I knew him and fortunate to get to spend time with him. Visited his apartment a few times. He was actually uh, in my house once. And of course, saw him at a lot of uh, uh, conferences, Libertarian Party conventions when I was involved in that. So I, I knew the guy personally and read a good deal. I can't, I won't go out on the limb and say every, absolutely everything, but I certainly read a good bit of what he wrote. That's a very important book. I could have picked others of his. It really sums up his political philosophy or what he called political ethics. So it's not economics. Uh, you know, he was econ an economist. PhD was in economics and he wrote a whole lot of economics, but he, he you know, got into political philosophy, social philosophy, history. He was good, you know, amazing historian. So, so much to uh, explore in Rothbard. But that's a great book for laying out his view of uh, sort of Aristotelian natural law, derivation of natural rights. And I, I always find this very appealing and that makes the most sense to me. Um, and so he covers a lot of other things uh, about property, and homesteading and things like that. It's just a very good book to, to consult or to read cover to cover if you like that sort of thing. I love the way you more or less uh, put it in the introduction to your book, What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. You say, the equation is simple. Individual freedom equals social cooperation equals individual and social flourishing. I, I, I think it's great whenever we try and take on either the utilitarian or the principled um, uh, objection to, uh, to, to these things. Because whether it's the right saying that the terrorists are evil, they're making a moral argument, or the left is saying right. that it's the bourgeoisie who are evil, th they're still on moral ground. So it's not like, well, we're here in fairyland and they talk about the real world. The emotional uh, moral argument, I think, is r really valid. Uh, why do you think ethically freedom is superior to coercion? Well, 
you could that can be approached in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the, the Austrian uh, critique of it, the Austrian economists, uh, beginning with Mises, is that you have a knowledge, basically a, a calculation problem. The the planner, I mean, when you say coercion, you know, think of economic planning, for example, which has to be done by coercion. Uh, the planner won't know what won't have access to prices because there are no markets. To have markets, you need to have property, including property in producers' goods, not just property in the, you know, I own this cup. And even in a socialist economy, I would own this cup. That's not where they. That's not what they wanted to abolish. They wanted to abolish, you know, ownership of factories, offices, producers' goods. Uh, but if you don't have trade in that, and trade requires property, so you can trade it, and other people can buy it. Assume, assuming ownership, you're not going to have access to prices. If you don't have prices, we can't do calculations, and therefore we can't figure out what people want, what's the best way to make that stuff. This is what entrepreneurs do. What's the best way to make it? How, how much to make? All that comes from, and Hayek, of course, elaborated on this, all that comes from knowing prices, and there's no substitute for prices. Um, another problem with coercion is that you know individuals are going to be the ones doing the coercing. Uh, what's the guarantee that, you know, I wouldn't like it even if they really knew what my interests were and that they were really sincere about serving my interests or the general welfare. It shouldn't be done by coercion. And I already gave you a reason why it can't be. But why assume they are going to be interested in what the social, the true social interest is, or which, you know, even if they thought of that as the summation of all individual interests, how, why aren't they going to, how do you know they're not going to be self-serving? In other words, if if people are too selfish to leave them free in the marketplace, which is a typical argument that anti-market people make, then who's going to be the leader? How do we how do we elevate anybody to political leadership? Aren't they the same kind of people? Aren't they the selfish people who'd be cheating people in the marketplace? What happened? They become saints when they take on a government office where they walk through the the the, the doorway of the Capitol or the White House. Now they're like, oh, we're not self-serving, narrow, selfish people anymore, as we were when we were merely uh, entrepreneurs or shopkeepers. So that's, it collapses under its own weight. It just collapses. Uh, libertarians, I mean, some libertarians have made a mistake over many years, not just the current generation, of uh, presenting too atomistic a case, right, for, and too economic a case for, for, for uh, liberty and libertarianism. Uh, we need to go back to the Greeks. There's a lot of good stuff in especially Aristotelian philosophy, uh, not the political philosophy, because, you know, he thought there were natural slaves and stuff like that. That can be thrown out. It's not essential. Uh, but the idea is we're social animals. We're political animals, not in the sense of a state necessarily, but there are always going to be issues which we can think of as political issues about disputes and, and uh, you know, what makes a good society. But we, we need uh, we need other people. So even under an egoistic outlook where we're talking about people have the right, an inalienable right to pursue their happiness, which is right. Jefferson's phrase, which he gets from Locke, it's in a founding document of the U.S. Declaration of Independence. That's an egoistic uh, sentiment, right? Life, liberty, liberty names, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It didn't say the pursuit of other people's happiness. It sounds very Randian, if I can use a, you know uh, that term here. Um, so we should in, that should be incorporated. That should be at the foundation of the case for liber for liberty. Our our self interest 
vitally, necessarily depends on relationships with people, webs of relationships with people, not just trade, but all other kinds of peaceful, constructive relationships from the most intimate to dealing with strangers. And we deal with strangers around the world, right? You go online to buy something, it could be coming from anywhere, and they take your credit card number. What kind of, how about that for cooperation? Somebody you'll never meet, you know nothing about, knows nothing about you, takes a, a, you put in a number and an expiration date, and they send you goods. You have a bank vouching, vouching for you, right? Or your visa, yeah, your visa bank or whatever vouching for you. Look at this web of wonderful cooperation that gives us access to the, to the world. Um, and so that ought to be built in. And so we're not sounding atomistic. I want to do, I, you know, you hear the term atomistic individualism by the, the other, by anti-market people, anti-libertarians will mock us for being, you know, for endorsing atomistic individualism, atom, A-T-O-M, like we're atoms, not connected. I coined the phrase, didn't really catch on, called molecular individualism. What we are is for molecular individualism. We're all, we have all these ties, right? Molecule is more, is multiple atoms that are linked. So I just tried to counter the atomistic, but I have a new term I want to use. I want to, us in favor of atomistic individualism, except I spell it A-D-A-M-istic. Adam Smith, that's the kind of individualism I like also. And if you read The Wealth of Nations and if you read his Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was his book on ethics, which came out before The Wealth of Nations, it's very clear he's talking about individuals embedded in society, embedded in, in a culture. You're born into it. You don't start the world fresh. And when, you, when people have tried to start the world fresh, like the French Revolution, they ended up with Robespierre and then Bonaparte. It's not, uh, it wasn't pleasant. So that's, if, if there was a question there, I've answered it, I think. <laughs> a Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell. Uh, a whole bunch of books by Thomas Sowell could have made this list, but you were, you were oppressively uh, allowing me only 10. Um, this is a very good book. I, I read this when it came out in the, uh, in the 80s. Was that about 87 too? I have the date somewhere. I think it's 87. And there he lays out what he sees as the two broad divisions among people who write about political philosophy. Uh, or social social philosophy. And it may not be perfect. I mean, he could, look, I, in, I don't want to be unfair to him. He says there's no pure, you know, there's no pure individual in history who fits in either one camp or the other. There are people with a leg and kind of both. So it's typically the case. But if you want it for analytical purposes, there seem to be two types of people. The people with what he calls the, the unconstrained vision, the idea that, you know, you hear politicians say there's nothing we can't do if we if we have the will. You hear politicians say this all the time. I think Kennedy said it. Johnson said it. Sanders says it. Uh, and you hear, you know, almost every day you can hear something. Somebody, you know, they put up an, somebody puts up an objection to Medicare for all or something or some new government intervention. It's only the political will that's keeping us from it. So that's the kind of the unconstrained. In other words, there isn't human nature and there's no natural laws working, including the laws of economics. Laws of praxeology, to use Mises' term for the laws of human action. There's a logic built in. This is, well, no, actually, I'm jumping ahead. You're going to get to that book. There's law, action itself has a built-in logic that, that you can't change. And we'll get to that 
when we get to the book. Uh, so that's the unconstrained, that we're not bound by any kind of natural law or laws of action or economic law. So we could do what we want. We can we can plan society. It ties in with the whole planning, the pro-planning position. It's only the will. We just got to convince people that we can do it. You know, it's the can do. And, you know, at an individual level, as far as you're uh, trying to accomplish things in your life, that's a great attitude. Can do, right? You know, and it's considered part of the American dream, right? The American ethic. Yeah, I can do that. I'll try. If I try hard, I can overcome any odds. Well, you can't overcome any odds, but it, it's not objectionable so much on an individual level. When you're talking about society, especially when it's going to be coercively done, getting back to your question about coercion, it's a very dangerous idea. So the other vision, contrasting vision, is the constrained vision. This is the idea that there is human nature. There is natural law. There is uh, economic law. There is praxeology. And that we therefore, we can't do anything. And this, you can see how this relates to the, mis, the Mises uh, objection to uh, planning. I mean, Mises was basically saying, no matter how much you want to do it, you're not going to be able to do it. If you don't have the information from prices, you're not going to know what you need to know. No planner can possibly know the knowledge that is scattered among all the individuals running around, do, you know, going about their business. And the price system can kind of bring that together and make it usable, but no no group or board could. So this is kind of part of Souls. And Souls did a, a book about that too called Knowledge and Decisions. So if I can cheat again and add another book, uh, that's a very important book. It's kind of very Hayekian kind of book about knowledge and, and society and, and decision making. So he says in that book, given the constrained vision that there is human nature, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So anytime you do something, yeah, it may be the right thing to do in a lot of ways. I don't mean just right in the moral sense. It may make sense. It may be the prudential thing to do. But there's going to be opportunity costs and other consequences. You know, the uh, the uh, the ecologist Garrett Hardin once said, in ecology, you can't do just one thing, right? Because everything always has some consequences. Uh, that's true of life in general, of economics, of social things. And there are always going to be... Uh, Consequences, some of which you'll know, and 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 and, but some of which are, un are you may not know, but are also the furthest thing from your intention, right? So, a very popular phrase among free market economists and libertarians is unintended consequences. You may have the best motives at heart. You may really think you're serving society, but by doing what it is you're proposing to do, and I mean it's you know typically through the state, oh not necessarily. Uh, you're going to do a lot of bad stuff. And it doesn't matter that you didn't intend it. It's going to happen and people are going to get hurt, maybe even killed. So you can't say, well, I didn't intend it. That may that may bear on our moral evaluation of you, but it doesn't change the fact that the consequences happened and people suffered. So this is by understanding the constrained vision that we can't just do anything if we only have the will will be a lot smarter about what it is in politics we're willing to endorse or not endorse. And it's a very important book. He followed it up with, he didn't take a position on which was better. He was just laying it out. He did follow it up with a book after that called The Vision of the Anointed, where he goes, really goes after, in a very learned way, the, uh, the people who hold the unconstrained vision. So that should cover it. 
<laughs> Human Action by Ludwig von right. Mises. Right, and that follows naturally because that's the book I was alluding to when I was talking about praxeology. Praxeology was a Mises term for basically the the study of human action. Because what he wanted to say was you could get economics uh, going and spin out the, uh, the implications of, of uh, from the idea that people, people, individuals act with a purpose. That's what human action is, as opposed to just movement, right? If I if if you tap my uh, tendon, my patellar tendon, at my knee, my my leg will go up a little bit, right? The doctor does this during your physical. That's not an action. Right? You didn't choose it, and you didn't have an end in mind. That was, that's not considered an action. Or, you know, you're breathing. You're not initiating your breathing. You, you, luckily, that's on automatic pilot. Imagine if you had to also purposefully breathe throughout the day. <laughs> you would never sleep. Uh, but action is where you have a goal, and then you, uh, you then adapt some means that you believe will get you to your goal. And so that's just a starting point. From there, we can talk about the ranking of goals. Uh, you know, it would make no sense to say, today, I'm not going to, today I have a whole bunch of goals in mind. I'm going to start, I'm going to work in reverse and work from the least important to the most important. Mises that would say that makes no sense. Actually, I think Wittgenstein would say something very similar. It makes no sense. If you're doing it first, that's what it means for it to be the most important. All you've done is decide. Now, you can always change your priorities any day. All you've done is say, you know what? I've rethought stuff. I'm turning my list upside down. Now, what yesterday was the least important, I've now decided it's the most important. So the most important, the first is always the most important. That's what it means. Uh, and if for, for some reason that's out of reach, then you go to the second important. Anyway, you can spin out all kinds of implications from that that it maybe see, even seem counterintuitive when you first hear them. The, the law of diminishing returns and uh, oh, there's all kinds of stuff. And human action is doing that. Uh, so there's a great there's a great philosophy in the beginning, in the, about the first hundred pages, about what praxeology is, what the purposeful human being is. And then the rest of the book essentially is about how markets work, what's wrong with socialism, although he wrote a whole book on socialism earlier, in 1922 called socialism there i've cheated and added another book to the list a very important book he me devastate socialism in all kinds of ways not just the economics uh, but human action then goes on to describe how markets work what the division of labor is and he was going to call the book social cooperation so it shows you what this defense of the market is all about it's about social cooperation. So it relates to what I already said about the Aristotelian view, the Greek view that we're social animals, that we don't do well living in isolation by ourselves. The idea that the, the model libertarian is a hermit living somewhere off the grid in a shack, like he's Ted Kaczynski without the letter bombs, is a joke. And and sometimes you'll hear you'll hear libertarians described that way by you know Salon magazine or you know who know they know nothing, but they think they can smear libertarians and and uh, you know people and Ayn Rand by thinking that's the ideal the individual living by himself off the grid never seeing another person, now maybe a family aside from a family that's a joke. Mises agrees with Adam Smith. The, the, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. The division of labor is good. And to the as you expand the market to worldwide, 
and if we ever get to other planets intergalactically, the division of labor becomes finer and finer, which means there's more and more productivity, more products, more things, more variety, more diversity. You know, in a small town, if you have a division of labor, there's too few people to have much stuff being done. So we have to do without, even if we knew what the things are. That's why this whole localism move is very bad. Buy local, buy local. Well, you know, if I buy local in my town, I guess I can't buy a smartphone. Nobody's making smartphones in my in my town or my section of town. So social cooperation, I once guessed that it was the most, aside from division of labor, labor, it was the most common phrase in human action. And somebody went online and used some program to count the words, to count the phrases, and, uh, and it turns out I'm right. Division of labor comes first, which is a division of labor, just another word for social cooperation, right? You do something, I do something. We, we, by as a result of our increased productivity, we each have more than we need or want for our own uses. We trade. That's called cooperation. So cooperation tends that it actually is the second most used phrase after division of labor. I guess that right, but I don't take any credit for the guess. It's obvious if you read Mises. It's obvious. It's a great book. It's a long book. You don't have to read it cover to cover. Treat it as an encyclopedia. Go in and look for particular things. My favorite line in, in that whole book, about 800 pages, 900 pages, is, comes toward the end, in the, in the 700s, the page, page numbers, it says that, that, everybody, that everybody wants shoes, just as I do, doesn't make it harder for me to get shoes, but easier. That says so much in one sentence, but just go and read the uh, the section where that appears, and you'll be astounded. Because the animal in the animal in the non-human animal kingdom, there they compete for consumption, right? Mm. They may fight over the antelope that's been brought down. We compete for in production, not in consumption. In the normal course of events, you know, maybe in an emergency situation. Where, where all kind of the, you know, normal life is suspended, terrible storm, earthquake or something, you know, I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about everyday life. We're not competing against other consumers. As producers, we may be competing against other producers, but all those other producers out there are competing to serve us. Cooperation and, and co competition are two sides of the same coin, right? Firms are competing with each other to, to decide who I'll choose to cooperate with me. Two sides of the same coin. There's not in the left wants to make them in conflict. Oh, we don't like competition. That's dog eat dog. That's rough and tumble. We like warm, cozy cooperation. No, they go together. So anyway, you have more books to move on to, I think. No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority by Lysander Spooner. Uh, 1870. Very thin. It's more a pamphlet, really. It was part of a new, like a kind of like a newspaper he started, and uh, you know it goes from like I think he had part one, part two, and then it jumped to part five, and and then nobody knows, really knows what happens. But you can find this online. I think Murray Rothbard might have. I don't know. I don't think he discovered. It. I think Carl Watner might have been the one who found it in a library somewhere and then brought it to Rothbard's attention. Spooner was a uh, mid to late 19th century American, very long beard, glorious beard. Uh, anarchist, individualist, pro-market anarchist, abolitionist, tried to provoke 
slave rebellions in the South before the Civil War. Uh, opposed the Civil War, though, on the grounds that it was, uh, you know, Lincoln's violence to not to end slavery. That's that wasn't his first objective. It was to uh, preserve the Union. In other words, keep people in the Union who didn't want to be in the Union. And on the other hand, he was an abolitionist who actually was sympathetic to John Brown, right, who tried to uh, what kidnap the governor of Virginia in order to uh, further the abolitionist. And he tried to get John Brown out of jail, uh, except he couldn't raise the money. Perennial libertarian problem, couldn't raise enough money. Uh, and would sneak into the South and put posters up on trees uh, trying to provoke uh, slave rebellion. So he was no, you know, no way sympathetic to slavery. And so he, write, he writes in 1870 this essay in the, in, the, in the publication called No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority. And the, the great line in it where he basically ends it is saying, you know, this we know, whether the Constitution authorized the government that we have. So in 1870, he's complaining about big government. Okay, A lot of libertarians today think that, oh, that's the golden age. Slavery was gone and there was still the tariff. Yeah, but they would say that's that's the beginning of the good time, right? The second half of the 19th century for a lot of libertarians is kind of a golden age. Because uh, compared to today, the federal government, you know, wasn't doing as much. But Spooner says either it authorized the government we had, which he thought was, you know, outrageously big in 1870, or it was powerless to prevent it. In either case, it, meaning the Constitution, is unfit to exist. I don't know how you answer that logic. To this day, I have not seen a good answer to that. So either it's, and it's more so today because the government's a whole lot bigger than, than it was under in Spooner's day. There was no there was no war on drugs in Spooner's day. Uh, there was no uh, income tax. There was no uh, social security or all the stuff you know in the welfare state. There certainly wasn't a huge military establishment. They weren't in in the Middle East, right? Occupying countries in the Middle East in, in 1870. So it's a lot bigger. So it's even a stronger argument. Either it authorized this government, or it was powerless to prevent it. In either case, it's unfit to exist. And he points out that, and he goes on at length. I mean, it's a very short. He, he can be a little wordy, but he makes sure the point is driven home. This was not, this is not a con. What is this constitution? He says, it's not a contract. Yeah. The framers signed it, but not in the in the spirit of a contract. Uh, and so who's bound by it? Nobody's bound by it. Uh, why do we have to listen? Why do we get taxed? I mean, where's this come from? And you can find libertarians today, limited government libertarians today who constantly appeal to the constitution. And say things like the Constitution, which summoned into existence the, the federal government, Spooner would say, what do you mean? First of all, it's a piece of parchment. How can it summon into existence? It can't speak. It can't do anything. And the, the people that wrote it and signed it, they where they get the power to summon into existence a government that's that was binding on everybody else? It wasn't, it wasn't like they got everybody under the tree. It's not the social contract. Got everybody under the oak tree. And, and gave it to him and signed, would you have the option of not signing? When I got to be 18 or 21, no one sent it to me to sign. And what happens if I don't sign? Do I get kicked out of my house? Or, or do I do they say, okay, we leave you alone. We don't tax you. We, you our laws don't apply to you. Uh, don't kill anybody. Don't steal from anybody. But other, you know, as long as you're peaceful, go about your business. You, we, we are not going to come and get your money. No. So he asks a very important question that I think non-libertarian non, non anarchists have to answer. 
where's this authority they keep appealing to? So it's a great, it'll take you like 10 minutes to read and you'll want to reread it. You can find it online for free, but you can also, you know, sure go to Amazon and get a Kindle version or get a hard copy. Final book, The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Another thin book, very thin, take you no time to read. You find it online. You can buy it though. Uh, it's been kept in print by the Foundation for Economic Education, which I mentioned before. That's fee.org, uh, where I worked for 15 years as editor of the Freeman. And Bastiat was one of the heroes of the founder of Fee back in 1947, uh, Leonard E. Reed, R-E-A-D, who was a great popularizer of Bastiat ideas and Mises Hayek, Hayek ideas. Uh, so one of the early, you know, post-war libertarians when the modern movement was kind of getting underway. Very important. Lots of people my age and I'm sure, you know, even, you know, younger, the next generation or so, really found Fee as an introduction to libertarianism. As one of the first things someone said to me, get on their mailing list. That back in the day, you know, well before the Internet. Uh, Get on your internet, uh, get on the, uh, once you're on the, you don't need to send them money. Once you're on the uh, mailing list, you'll be on it forever. Don't worry about it. And I was, I was a student. I was still in high school. So I didn't exactly have money to send to them. And the uh, Freeman was a little magazine about this big. So anyway, Bastiat. Bastiat writes this really in 1850. He dies in 1851. He's, he's, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great classical liberal, French classical liberal, lived from uh, like 1801, 18, maybe it's 1801, 1850. Uh, I forget. Dies, dies unfortunately young. Uh, wrote a whole bunch of, he was, he was an economist who wrote for the people. He wasn't a university professor. And he wrote pamphlets, but he also wrote a, uh, what's considered as magnum opus, or was unfinished, called Economic Harmonies, which is a treatise. It's very proto-Austrian. It anticipates a lot of Austrian stuff. There's some differences. But he's kind of gone beyond Smith. It's before John Stuart Mill, you know, kind of takes the field and writes his general principles of economics. Uh, and it's before the uh, Austrian school gets launched in 1871. Um, but in the law, he's even much more basic than that. He's saying, you know, what's the law? Why do, why do we even need law? And he says it's because predating any kind of law uh, in the sense of government law, uh, human beings who are social animals, who is right in that tradition, need needed to produce to, in order to live. They needed to produce the food and the shelter and the other stuff, clothing, that they needed for not only to survive, but to flourish, to go beyond mere survival. And, and that requires property. And property is, you know, that, that requirement is naturally going to uh, require a means of um, self-defense against predators. Because some people will find it easier to take from someone else rather than to exert effort, to, to labor. And so he spins out this idea of why law would be necessary. He's not, you know, he's not an anarchist, but he's not so much defending the state per se. He's just, he's defending the idea of governance. And of course, libertarian anarchists or, you know, stateless libertarians um, believe in governance. They just don't believe in a monopoly state. Uh, it's, it's not an abolition of governance. And, and, me, and as Hayek pointed out, law is different from legislation. Law is the is sort of the informal uh, emergent rules of just conduct that bubble up from the bottom, right? That's part of the spontaneous order, as he called it, not, not top-down imposed order. So he talks, Bastiat now talks about 
the dangers of, of government growing and having its hand in more and more things. And I found that when I was looking over the book to refresh my memory, again, it's a very short book, in, in order to prepare for this discussion today with you, uh, I came across an astounding uh, quotation that I forgot. So see whether this reminds, uh, everybody should see whether this reminds them of anything. But um, where is it? He says in that book, as long as, as it is admitted that the law may be diverted from its true purpose, that it may violate property instead of protecting it, then everyone will want to participate in making the law, either to protect himself against plunder or to use it to use it for plunder. Political questions will always be prejudicial, dominant, and all-absorbing. There will be, listen to this last sentence, there will be fighting at the door of the legislative palace and the struggle within will be no less furious. Now, is it my imagination, but when he says they'll be fighting at the door of the legislative palace, January 6th comes to mind. Has, hasn't politics become so important? And we hear about polarization all the time. Everything's political, right? Hasn't politics become so dominant a thing that everybody fears that the opposing gang is going to get their hands on political power and therefore I need to do anything, I can do almost anything, and, and justifiably in order to keep the power out of their hands, which means getting it into my gang's hands? Isn't that where we are? Isn't that what the tribalism is all about? Left and right, I'm not exempting anybody except libertarians, basically, and some class, you know, people who don't want, don't know that title or don't want to use that label. That's what's going on today. And I'm not in either camp of the people fighting. But that's what happens when the government can basically have a say, if not outright control, over everything that happens in life. Here's Bastiat warning about it in 18, uh, like I say, 1850. I mean, to have that phrase, they'll be fighting at the gates of the legislature. If I had turned, if I had just put it in brackets, fighting at the Capitol, you know, people will say, who said that? Somebody, you know, from 10 years ago or? No, 1850, he was saying. It's a wonderful book. It'll take you like 10 minutes to read, but it's a book you'll want to read every now and then. So it goes along with the treason and a couple of certainly the shorter things I mentioned. Uh, Bastiat's very important. Explore other things in Bastiat. He was very good at pointing out, he, he, he was great at coming up with fables to point out economic fallacies. And uh, if I can take another minute just to give an example of that. And if you, if you there's a collection of his book called uh, Economic Sophisms, where he goes through this stuff. Uh, you know, and, and you hear this, this is very relevant today. This is not just a fable. Um, he tells the story of a shopkeeper whose son throws, he's mad at his father. He throws a stone through the father's front window. It's on a, you know, a corner in Paris or something and smashes the window. And people come out from the different shops saying, oh, how terrible. What a misfortune. He's going to, you know, broken window is going to have to fix the window. But then some bright guy whose name happens to be Paul Krugman, uh, I think, says, well, hang on. There's a silver lining. Let's not all, you know, hold your tears. He's going to have to spend, and I think the example he uses, five francs to pay the glazier, the, the, the glass maker, to come and fix the window, replace the window. Now the glazier has five francs he wouldn't have had it before. What's he going to do? He's going to buy a hat. Now the hat maker has five francs he didn't have. 
What's he going to do? He's going to go to the baker and buy some cakes. Now the baker has five francs he wouldn't have had except for that mischievous kid. And it's going to circulate through the town. And the town is going to be richer. And as Bastia basically says, okay, let's go break all the windows in town and get everybody really rich. Now, first you might say, and by the way, Krugman and people like him say that after every bad storm, right? When there's a whole bunch of, when smashed, windows are smashed because winds and tornadoes and stuff, sooner or later, someone's going to say, right after they bash price gouging, the next thing they say is, well, this is going to create jobs. It's going to invigorate the economy, at least. You know, so there's a bright side, silver, they always say, there's always a silver lining. Well, Bastian says, hang on a second. Hang on a second. You missed something. And this is why he calls this the seen and the unseen. What is seen and what is unseen? The fallacy, which has come to be known as the broken window fallacy, is you're missing the unseen. Well, it's unseen. So, of course, you miss it unless you think like an economist. And most people haven't studied economics. If they have, they've forgotten everything they might have learned in 101. They don't look, they don't wonder about the unseen. The unseen is this. Let's go back in time. The boy doesn't throw the window, throw the rock through the window. He decides to do something else. There's five francs that in the old, in the other version is going to go to the glassmaker, but now it's in the still in the pocket of the uh, this shopkeeper, whatever he does. What was he going to do? He was going to spend it somehow, or he was going to save it for a future rainy day in which where he would have needed it or maybe invested it for interest in which case he'd have then more money and could do something with in other words he can use it to carry out some plan he's got for his life to improve his life and his families or he would have spent it in which case the five would have circulated so that's unseen that he was going to do something with the five that gets missed in the story but in the story that's told they're forgetting something. It's true that that five gets passed around, but he's got to spend the five just to put himself back to the condition he was in before the window was broken. He's not ahead. By the end of the day, when he has the window uh, replaced, he's only where he was at the beginning of the day when he had a window intact. He had to spend the $5 and that time just to, to go back to the condition he was. He's not better off. In the other story, he's better off you know, if it hadn't been broken, and the other people he uh, spent the money, you know, with to buy stuff are better off, and nobody's worse off. That's the unseen. Um, and he does that in, like, in so many cases. With He's a great free trader. He, he shows the fallacies of protectionism, tariffs, and how you don't get wealthy by restricting uh, trade. You don't get wealthy by restricting trade, even if your goal is well-intentioned, protect jobs or whatever. So, Everybody should read that. <laughs> you you did such you did such a great job with that. Can you tell the uh, uh, can you summarize the petition of the candle makers? Because that was one of the first ones that yeah. I really uh, one of his classics. Been a while since I read it, so uh, if I miss an aspect of it, uh, feel free to jump in. This is part of his uh, attack on protectionism. You know, but he puts it in sort of a different context in order to maybe illuminate the point in a way that he wouldn't have had, wouldn't have. Because people propose tariffs as a way to protect 
jobs and American, let's say American firms. Uh, if you burden foreign goods that Americans are also making, like steel or whatever it is, or a finished finished product, if you if you make the price higher to American buyers by adding a tariff, which is a tax, right? By you're making it more expensive, and that's supposed to then make the American product look more attractive because it doesn't have the tax; it's not paying the tax. That's only on imports, not domestic goods. Then Americans will, the theory is, buy the American goods and will have helped. So he wants to mock this by by this way. The candle makers, the people that make candles, this is before electric lights, of course, this is right between 1801 and 1850, uh, petition the government. Is it the petition the government to, um, because they, um, they're hurt by the sun, because during the day, the sun comes through windows and people don't use, need to use candles. And the fewer candles people use, the fewer they buy. If they had to use candles all day because and didn't get the free sunlight, they'd buy more candles, which would be good for the economy and therefore good for France. That's the theory. Um, so I th is this the one where you wanted a tax on windows? Am I, do, uh, am I remembering it correctly? I mean, they can't stop the sun, but they could get the government in order to protect this candle industry, which is going to be good for the whole country, of course, right? If everybody's working and candle makers are not thrown out on on, uh, on their ear. Um, if we put a tax on windows, houses will be built with fewer windows and maybe with no windows, hopefully. The sun won't be getting in during the day and people have to buy candles. So in a way, it's kind of a tariff, right? Because you can't tax the sun. The sun's not, doesn't, doesn't pay taxes. <laughs> we'll, we'll pay taxes. But you can, in a, you can indirectly do that. Um, and so that shows the fallacy. We won't be richer. Even if some candle makers will uh, have work when they would have had to go into some other line of work, uh, we won't be richer. We'll clearly be poorer because the money we're spending on candles, we can't spend on other things. And that's the point. The point about the tariffs. If we if we um, if we have to pay more for a product because there are tariffs on the foreign product, but you know, presumably the without the tariff, the the foreign good is coming in and undercutting the American. Price, right? So, so, and assuming we think they're of equal quality, or you know, at least comparable quality, and we want to spend uh, the, by the lower priced foreign good, this is why the domestic firms complain to the government, right? Unfair, unfair competition. They're dumping, they're dumping, they're selling below our, our, our what we can charge. So, if you force them to put the price not equal, but you put foreign price higher, now we're forced to pay more for, for this good, right? We were going to be able to buy here. We don't want to buy here. I mean, some people might, it may, they may think it's superior quality, but let's leave them out for the moment. Let's assume, let's assume unrealistically equal quality. We're not going to pay this. We'll pay this to buy from the American. But what about the difference between here and here? Without the tariff, we'd be buying here, you know, this at this level, which means here's money now going to the good, whatever it was, that we would have had otherwise free to use for other things. Well, that, some of those other things are made by Americans. We're going to be buying fewer American goods of other kinds. So we're helping this group of very visible, vis, visible Americans. And the unseen is we're hurting this group of Americans. And some of them may be foreign too. We might have bought other foreign goods. But there's, there's a group of Americans who we don't see because they're not complaining, right? So this group that's complaining, the steel workers get the attention. They're in the news. 
but we don't know we don't know who's not going to get income because I can't buy their stuff anymore because I got to spend more on steel products. We just don't know who they are, so they're unseen. And we're also hurting Americans in another way, which is unseen. When we buy foreign goods, they have to spend their dollars on. They can't spend their dollars in Tokyo or you know in uh, Germany or you know England. They don't take that currency. They have to spend it in America on American goods. So in, exports lead to imports. Import them if they don't have as much money as many dollars because we've now discouraged Americans from buying from them. They have fewer dollars with with, with which to buy other American goods. So we're, we're hurting another group of Americans, several groups of Americans who would have been making those goods. And we don't, but we don't know who they are because we don't know who they would have bought from. We know it's some Americans, but we just don't know which ones. So they're by definition invisible too. The only group we know about are the steel people. We don't know who's hurt in those other two respects. This was what Bastiat was trying to show. You can't get wealthy by restricting trade if you're looking at the full picture, if you're looking at the unseen as well as the seen. He's brilliant. There have been few writers, you know, debunkers of economic uh, fallacies uh, as good in all of, <laughs> all of history. So read Bastiat, but start with the law. This was one of my uh, favorite quotes that uh, I credit with uh, making me a libertarian. Uh, in the 2012 uh, debates, there were a series of interviews of the Republican candidates, and the question to Ron Paul, the only person they asked this question of, they said, if you could recommend a book uh, that would introduce people to your ideas, which seem different than the others on the stage, what would it be? And he recommended the law. So I, I read this. I remember I was on a trip in California. This was in 2012, so I had to have been like, what, 16 or something. Mm. Um, he says on page four. If every person has the right to defend, even by force, his person, his liberty and his property, then it follows that a group of men have the right to organize and support a common force to protect these rights con constantly. Since an individual cannot lawfully use force against the person, liberty, or property of another individual, then the common force, for the same reason, cannot lawfully be used to destroy the person, liberty, or property of individuals or groups. So just getting to see governance as anything that we any right that we have that's more uh, efficiently done through delegation rather than there's a state that has extra rights government right. supremacy i like to call it uh a, yep. one group more rights than everyone else that was so mind-blowing so uh any uh final uh words of advice for well, the books or said, uh, any closing thoughts i'm glad you brought out that point about bastia because as I suggested at the beginning when we talked about the law, that gets down to as basic a level as you can get. So it's very important yeah. if you want to understand this worldview, this classical liberal or what's again being called the liberal viewpoint or the libertarian viewpoint, that's a great place to start because it's as basic as it can get. Bastiato makes another point on that, which uh, we can uh, close on. It relates to what I was saying about voting before. Uh, if if people are you know too stupid to run their lives, which which government intervention implies, right? Because governments needed to yeah. do it. We can't take care of ourselves. How can we be smart enough to vote every two, four, six years? Why are we smart like one day, you know, every couple of years when it comes to 
a very you would think a very important decision in the in the eyes of the uh, so-called Democrats, small D Democrats or Democratic Republicans. We, we're very smart when we go to the voting booth, but in every other aspect of life and every other day of the year, we're stupid because then we need we need government watching over us one way or the other, whether it's a right wing kind of thing, protecting tradition and all that stuff or a left wing thing in, you know, safe social safety net and all that. It doesn't make sense. If we're that stupid, there shouldn't be any voting. But then again, who how do we you know, why should anybody be in power? Because they're also stupid. How, how are Don they? How is, uh, you know, whoever you think ought to be running, not you, but they think ought to be running things, have that person get out of the platonic cave, you know, the shadowy cave, and the rest of us are still stuck in it. How's that person get it? And even if the person says he's out of it, why should we believe him? I mean, he would, of course he'd say that. He wants power. <laughs> anyway, Bastiat is great. I'm glad, we ended, I'm glad I put Bastiat last because we ended up, he, he's the last person we talked about. <laughs> yeah. John Boudreau calls it dumb individuals, brilliant as if they're different sets of people. Yeah. When and it's actually really the other way around, as, as Kaplan points out, yeah. and, uh, yes. Brandon and others point out, no, we're dumbest in the voting booth, in a way. Dumbest with quotes, because yeah. Yeah. we don't need to exercise responsibility when we vote. Because you, your one vote isn't, everybody knows their, their vote is not going to change the outcome. And number two, even if the person they vote for gets in, and who may be calling for some huge spending program, any individual voter is only going to pay a tiny sliver, right, of the total cost. The social cost will be huge because it's all those little slivers added up. It's going to be a huge burden on the on the economy's ability to produce and make our lives better. But the direct cost to me as as one individual of, of uh, any program that a, that a candidate is calling for like I said, it may not be worth the price of a stamp to complain, you know, to send in a letter of complaint. So we're stupid. I don't quite mean that literally, but the incentives are such that we act stupid in the voting booth, much stupider than we act in everyday life. I mean, we 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 have the incentive to put much more care into buying a loaf of bread than in selecting. And, and we're also able to get information about a loaf of bread than we are about the candidate we may think be thinking about voting for it. So it's it's actually the opposite of what the statists say. Thank, thank Keith Knight. Don't anyone in the Libertarian Institute. The book is What Social Animal to Each Other. We've got 50 chapters here or something like that. So they're short. You can get a new idea every three pages. It's just uh, I feel like I'm in a boxing. Game. It's like three page. I got to set this down. That was. That Get out of a house yeah. here. They are uh, short. Thank you, Sheldon. Uh, thank thank you. you, Sheldon, for your time. I enjoyed it immensely. I hope to visit with you again. And thanks for asking me. <laughs>